Good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Uh, As you heard Logan say, uh, Christmas season is upon us, uh, and so we are going to dive into our Advent series. And uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through the first five verses of John chapter 1. Now, as you turn there, I wonder, uh, maybe just think about, what would you say to someone who asks you, what is your favorite thing? What do you look forward to most about this time of year? What do you look forward to most about the Christmas season? Maybe it's gathering with friends and family. Maybe it is the decorations. Maybe it's the Christmas lights. If we're honest, it's receiving gifts, right? Like, I like gifts. You like gifts. Uh, some people, uh, they love giving gifts. Um, I'm lucky. My wife's love language is giving gifts, and mine is receiving gifts from her. Um, and so the Lord knew what he was doing. Opposites attract uh, is what they say. Uh, but there, there's so many things that we get excited about uh, this time of year. And, and gift giving is obviously one of those things. Uh, I read this week that in 2021, uh, Americans spent $886.7 billion on Christmas shopping. And that includes gift giving, that includes decorations, lights, food, all of those things. I, I think my kids' grandparents spent about $6 billion of that uh, themselves. I was also interested to read that uh, the average American pet will receive $50 worth of gifts uh, this year at Christmas. Um, You do with that what you will. Um, There's so many things that we look forward to at Christmas. I think all of those things are really good things. Getting and receiving gifts and parties and presents, all those things. And, and we also, maybe you have the t-shirt or growing up, my, uh, my mom had a, a pin that she would wear that said, Jesus is the reason for the season. All right. Well, first off, Jesus is the reason for every season, right? Uh, he, he is the reason for all of it. And we, we wear the pin, we wear the shirt, we wear the bumper sticker that says, Jesus is the reason for the season. But but I wonder how oftentimes uh, Jesus is the forgotten reason of the season, right? That we, we get distracted, we get focused on all of these other things, none of which are bad. But that's what the enemy does, right? The enemy takes and he distracts us with good things to keep us from great things, right? He distracts us with good things to keep us from Jesus. And so what we have to do as believers, if we, we have to work into our lives, we have to work into this season specifically, a rhythm to be able to really walk slowly to the manger of Christ, right? to walk intentionally through this season so that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And that's what we want to do this morning. This morning, we're going to begin this series is we're going to walk intentionally slow uh, through these first five verses over the next several weeks to, to stop and to see what is it that we must know about Jesus. You know, in the, the early church, the first 300 years of the Christian faith, they would take this season, they would take the Christmas season, and they would slow down everything that they were doing, and they would focus their time. They saw it as a time of catechism, a time of teaching exclusively only on who Jesus is and what Jesus is like because there was so much confusion. 
well, 2,000 years later, I don't know that there is any less confusion in our world about who Jesus is. And so what that means is we have to be incredibly clear on what we believe and what we confess about Jesus. And so uh, hopefully, prayerfully, over these next few weeks, uh, we'll be helped by God's Word to do just that. So as we look here at John this morning, we're going to read John 1, 1 to 5. We're going to focus on the first two verses. And as we do, we're going to see this, that Jesus Christ is the glorious Son of God who is worthy of our worship. Jesus Christ is the glorious Son of God who is worthy of our worship. So look with me here at John chapter 1. We're going to read down from verse 1 to verse 5. I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in John chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, the Spirit says to us this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's Word. You can be seated. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for the Word who became flesh. Father, we are grateful for Jesus, your Son. And Father, I I pray this morning that we would see Jesus clearly. And Father, I pray that as we see Jesus clearly, that we would love Him more intensely. Father, I, I pray even now for individuals and families represented in this room, God, that that this Christmas season, that it would be the sweetest Christmas season they have ever experienced. Not because of all of the things, but because of you. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus Christ is the glorious Son of God who is worthy of our worship. And here in these first two verses of the Gospel of John, John really does some pretty heavy lifting. He does some pretty heavy theological lifting, and so we're going to go right in with him. And so we're going to see a few things that we need to know about Jesus. And the verse is this, is that Jesus is eternally glorious. Jesus Christ is eternally glorious. Now, eternity can be a difficult concept for us to grasp. One dictionary helpfully defines it this way, that eternity is a duration of time without beginning and without ending. It's a duration of time without beginning or end, and that's exactly what the Scriptures teach us about who our God is. That our God, that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, that He has no beginning and no ending. This is true of the Father, and it's true of the Son. Now, here in John chapter 1, what the writer does, what John does, is he imitates the first verse of Genesis, Right, Genesis chapter 1, you probably know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John begins his gospel with, in the beginning. And some of his readers are thinking, oh, we know where this is going. And then John pulls a fast one. Right? He says, no, in the beginning was the Word. Now, what John does here is he goes back, not just to the beginning of time. He goes back to eternity past. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The the Word wasn't created in the beginning. The Word wasn't created at some point. No, the Word has always existed. If you look at verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, there's there's a word here that we shouldn't miss, and it's the word was. 
Notice he doesn't say that in the beginning the Word began. He didn't say in the beginning is the beginning of the Word. No, he says in the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Word was already there. Right? It signifies this continuing existence. In the beginning, the Word didn't begin. He was there. He has no begin, no beginning, and He has no ending. Now, who is this Word? Well, we know from verse 14 and following that this Word is Jesus. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and So he gives this title of the Word to Jesus. Why not just say Jesus? Why not just say, in the beginning, Jesus was? In the beginning was Jesus. Instead, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And it it can almost be a tongue twister as you read through this passage that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. How many times fast can you say Word and God and beginning and, and all of those things? So why would he give Jesus this title of Word? Well, there's different ideas, and and one of the things that we see as we look back through history is that this idea of the Word, it's the Greek word logos, that this was a popular concept in the day and the time that John was writing. So the Greeks, they would talk about the logos, the Word. When they talked about it, they They said that that logos, that it was the principle that controls the world. The Stoics, they would talk about the logos, the word. And when they talked about the logos, they they referred to that as the soul of the world. And so John uses this word logos. And when he does, his audience that was Jewish and Gentile, they're bringing to it with this this baggage or with this understanding, but if we're really going to understand, why does John use the word word? We have to understand the Old Testament background of this idea of the word word. In the Old Testament, God's word is always connected with his activity. So jump back to Genesis chapter one for a minute. In the beginning was the word. That's actually John one, right? Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God create? He he didn't create in a laboratory mixing chemicals or putting molecules together. He, he He didn't create some clay figures and then breathe life into them. No. Do you remember how God created? He spoke, right? He spoke. He he said, become something, and it became something. That's what God does. God works by his word. See, in the Old Testament. God's Word is always connected with God's activity of creation, of revelation, and of deliverance. So God's Word is always associated with Him creating things, Him revealing Himself, and Him delivering His people. And so here what John does is he takes this this idea of God's Word and he personifies it. And he applies it as a title to God's ultimate self-revelation. His ultimate exposure of Himself, the the person of his son, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the perfect picture of who our God is. It's not that Jesus is mostly like who our God is. It's not that Jesus gives us a good idea of who our God is. No, Jesus is God. 
He's not a model of God. He's not a version of God. He is God. He's not a smaller idea or a tamer version, but he is just as eternally glorious as the Father. Now, I, I didn't grow up playing with Legos. I, I didn't grow up building model cars. The closest thing I ever got to a model car was the wood car at the Awana Grand Prix, the Derby, that someone else would make, and I would take it, and I would lose, right? Uh, I would get the glory. But I can appreciate model cars. Maybe, maybe you've put together some of these model cars. Maybe you have a collection of these model cars. I can appreciate them because I, I've seen these model cars that people have obviously spent hours and hours and hours in putting together and painting. And you can, you can get up close to them and you can see the, the different parts. You can see them, they, the doors open and you can look in and you can see these things. You can hold them and they have some weight to them. You can tell that this isn't just like a, a cheap model, but this is something that someone has put a significant amount of time in. You can appreciate that model car, yet even as you look at it and even as you hold it, you know that that is not the real thing. Understand this. Jesus is not the model car version of God. Right? Jesus is eternally glorious. He's not almost glorious, but he is equally glorious. And so what this means is that whenever we approach Jesus, that we approach him with awe. We approach him with wonder. We approach him with reverence. We approach him with the same fear that we approach the Father with. But we've got to be careful that we shouldn't mistake indifference to who Jesus is as intimacy with Jesus. See, when, when, we, when we approach Jesus with indifference, that leads us to say things like, Jesus is my co-pilot. Or the old shirt and bumper sticker that used to float around that Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not another man. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. Jesus is the creator God who is worthy of reverence and respect and honor and glory and worship. See, if we, could, if we could see Jesus clearly, if we could see Jesus perfectly, what we would see is this, that Jesus is terrifyingly holy while at the same time he is immensely and abundantly gracious and merciful. That Jesus' holiness would terrify us because we would recognize that he is something that we are not. We would recognize that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have sinned against him and that our sin cannot stand in the presence of perfection. Our, stand, our sin cannot stand in the, the presence of perfect righteousness. And yet what do we also see of Jesus? That he is immensely and abundantly merciful and gracious. That he doesn't say your sin is okay. No, he says, I've come to do something about your sin. I have come to, to save you. I've come to redeem you from that which makes us unacceptable. He, he's come to make us lovely who are unlovely because we've been marred by our sin. See, we see here that Jesus is eternally glorious. Next, we see this, that Jesus Christ is equally worthy. Jesus Christ is equally worthy. 
Now, it's been said about the Gospel of John that the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a small child to swim, but deep enough for a scholar to drown. And we see that right off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 1, don't we? That, that John takes this deep and profound truth, and yet he communicates it in a way that we can understand. So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and then that next phrase he says, and the Word was with God. So he introduces us to the Word, and now he's going to tell us some things that we must know about the Word. And first he says that the Word was with God. This God is God the Father. What he's doing here is he's showing, one, that there's a difference between the Word and the Father. But he's also showing us that the Word, that Jesus, is no less divine. Know that Jesus is equally worthy. Remember, what he's talking about here in John 1.1 is he's talking about eternity past. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and in that beginning the Word was with God. See, that the Jesus, that the Son, the Word, has been with God doing what God does. And so we see these, these two persons here. We see the Word, and we see God. Now, what we have here is we have the building blocks of what we today call the Trinity, right? That our God is one in essence, but three in persons. In fact, what we have here is we have the building blocks of the Trinity. So I'm going to give you three building blocks of the Trinity. Some of you are saying, brother, it's 1045 on a Sunday morning. What are you doing, right? Uh, but trust me, this is worth it because our God is glorious. So the, the first building block is this, is there is one true God who exists in more than one person. Right, the first, first thing that we confess about the Trinity is there's one true God. He is one in essence. He exists in more than one person. And as we read the scriptures, we come to see that he exists in the first person, God the Father, the second person, God the Son, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. So the first building block is there is one true God who exists in more than one person. The second building block is this, is that these persons relate to each other. They have different roles and they have different responsibilities. And the third block is this, is that they have always existed. So if we were going to summarize, we would say that our He's one in essence, he's three in persons, and he has always existed. He is eternal. Now, understand this. This is not a New Testament concept. This is an eternal reality. That our God is a trinity, a triunity, and he has always been a trinity. Now, why does any of this matter? 1040 on Sunday morning, why why should I care? Why should you care? Why should we care about the Trinity? Well, the Trinity matters because worship matters. You cannot worship a God that you do not know. To worship Him rightly, you have to know Him. See, in this way, the Trinity is the most practical doctrine, that we were created to worship God, therefore, we must know God. It's not enough to just say, well, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship, worship God. And then I say, right, well, what is your God like? Oh, well, he's, you know, right? He's, he's there. 
and he's, he's holy and, you know, right? I would imagine that no husbands that on your honeymoon looked at your wife and said, all right, I know enough about you, right? We don't need to talk anymore, right? Uh, no, no wife has ever looked at her husband and said, all right, TMI, right? It, it's over. No, that, that if, we, if we're going to know, if we're going to, to love someone, then we must know them, right? If we're going to love them intimately, then we must know them fully. You, you, can't, you can't love someone, you can't worship someone, you can't worship a God that you do not know, right? I, I love my wife. If I stood up here and told you this morning that my favorite things about my wife are her dark brown hair, her dark brown eyes, and her olive skin, you might think that's sweet. The problem is my wife has blonde hair, blue eyes, and the opposite of olive skin, right? Uh, that that I would be talking about someone completely different. You might think I'm sweet. Anna does not, right? Anna does not think that. And yet so oftentimes we approach God with the same mentality. Right, God, I, I think I want to love you. But then we wouldn't say this, but here's what we mean. God, I want to love you. I just don't have time to know you. Or... God, I want to be blessed by you, but I, I don't want to spend any time with you. God, that, that I, I want you whenever I need you, but don't call me, I'll call you. See, the, the Trinity is the most practical truth in the world because you and I, we were created to worship God. And if we do not know him, we cannot worship him. If we do not know him, we cannot love him. There's a, there's a second reason why this matters. There's a second reason why we should care about knowing the Trinity. One is that worship matters, but here's the second reason. It's because the gospel matters. Without the Trinity, we don't have a gospel. See, the gospel is more than just simply that God is a judge and that he declares you innocent. No, the gospel is that God the Father planned, God the Son carried out, and the Holy Spirit applies God the Father's plan of redemption that God the Son executed. God the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts and to our lives. See, the gospel is that God gave himself to us that the Father sent the Son to not only live with us, but to die for us. And that the, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to live in us and to bring us to the Father through the Son. So understand this, that if we lose the Trinity, we lose the gospel. If we're fuzzy on the Trinity, we will ultimately be fuzzy on the gospel. See, we need the Trinity because the Trinity has saved us. God's plan to redeem flows from that. And so we see that Jesus Christ is eternally glorious. We see that he's equally worthy. And then finally, we see this, that Jesus Christ is truly God. Jesus Christ is truly God. Now, here in verse 1, there's a theological progression. And it goes into verse 2, and verse 2 is really just a restatement of something we've already seen. So it starts with eternity, and it moves to the Trinity, and then to Jesus' divinity. So John makes it plain that the word was and is God. 
Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then look at that last phrase of verse 1, and the Word was God. Verse 2 says he was in the beginning with God. That's a restatement of what we've just looked at. So here in the end of verse 1 and verse 2, it highlights the, div- the divinity and the distinctiveness of Jesus. That Jesus is God and was with God in the beginning. So what does it mean that the Word was God? It means that Jesus is the perfect communication of who God is and what He is like. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So you can think about it like this, that what God is, Jesus is. One in essence with the Father and yet at the same time, distinct. Now here John says that the Word was God. That statement couldn't be any clearer. That Jesus is truly God. Not just fully God. He is truly God. And yet what we see throughout history and even today, that the divinity that who Jesus is is under attack. Starting... Just a hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, there started to be false teachers that would creep up and would question the divinity of Jesus. They were called Arians. The Council of Nicaea in 325, they met. Bishops and leaders from the church around the world that time, they met to decide What do we believe? And there was no question that Jesus is fully divine. One of the bishops that was at that first church council was St. Nicholas. That St. Nicholas. My favorite story from church history is that St. Nicholas got tired of hearing Arians talk about Jesus not being fully divine. And so he got up, he walked across the room, and he slapped one in the face and told him to stop, right? That's my kind of Santa Claus, right? Punching heretics and bringing presents? Like, that's what we need. That's, that's who we should be. But this was serious, right? This was a serious, in fact, this was so serious. This, this truth was so essential that believers died. They died on the hill saying that Jesus is God. Now, this this truth that Jesus is God, it's not, it's not under any less attack today, right? People, maybe will say things like, you don't really believe that Jesus was God. I'll do you one better. I believe he's God, and I believe he came to earth, and he died, but now he's alive again, right? Our Jehovah's Witness neighbors, they knock on your door to tell you that Jesus is not God. That is not a new teaching. That's an old heresy, See, we've got to know that Jesus is God, and we've got to build our lives on that. But there's another danger. There's another danger. It's not just that we would believe that Jesus isn't God. The other danger that's equally as dangerous is we would believe that Jesus isn't man. We've got to believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man. But think of it like this, that everything that God is, Jesus is. And everything that man was supposed to be, Jesus is. That Jesus is not only the perfect picture of God, but Jesus is also the perfect picture of what we were to be. That he never 
experienced sin. That he was tempted, but he was found faithful. And in a very real way, we could say that Jesus is more human, is truly human. He's more human than you and I have ever been. But he come so that one day we could be made truly alive. We could be made fully alive. See, this is ultimately what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about celebrating a Savior who is truly God and truly man. Not mostly God and mostly man, not, not, not kind of God and kind of man, but no, truly God and truly man. And we celebrate that because that's what the gospel is all about. It's about God becoming man and dying in our place. See, if we we lose either Jesus as truly God or Jesus as truly man, we lose the gospel. Because what qualified Jesus to die for us is that he was like us. And what qualified Jesus to be our sacrifice is that he was God. The reason that we can come to God is not because we've been good enough or because we've tried hard enough. The reason that we can come to God is because God the Son has brought us to himself. Or that God has saved us. You know, one of the things I love about classic Christmas carols is oftentimes they are packed full of theological truth and theological meat. I'm not talking about grandma got run over by a reindeer or something like that, but we just sang joy to the world. Joy to the World is my favorite Christmas song that is not a Christmas song. Joy to the World is not, first and foremost, about the first advent of Jesus. Joy to the World is about the second advent of Jesus. That he comes to rule the nations. That he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There's another another Christmas song that, that I've come to love over the last couple of years, and it's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, I think one of the ways that we can, I mentioned walk slowly to the manger. One of the ways that you can walk slowly to the manger this Christmas is to think about the Christmas songs that we sing. To chew on them. Listen to this line from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's John 1, 1, isn't it? That the Godhead, the Trinity, is veiled in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the incarnate deity that is worthy of our worship. He's been pleased as a man with men to dwell because he's Jesus, our Emmanuel. What does it mean that he's Jesus, our Emmanuel? He is Jesus, our God, with us. See, if we lose this union of Jesus being truly God and truly man, then we lose the gospel. We lose Christmas. We we lose what God has come to do. See, we celebrate Christmas because Jesus Christ came in the flesh as God's Son, But he was born not only to live, he was born to die. He he was born to die in my place. He was born to die in your place. So that you and I might experience the forgiveness of sin and life abundant and life eternal. 
See, Jesus Christ, he really is the glorious son of God, and he's worthy of worship simply because he's the glorious son of God, but he's worthy of worship all the more because he's not only the glorious son of God who rules and reigns in heaven, but he's the glorious son of God who has humbled himself by taking the form of a servant and dying the death of a thief on a cross. And he died that death on the cross, not not just as an example, not, not just as a model, He died on that cross as a sacrifice for you. He died on that cross as a sacrifice for me. That on the cross, Jesus took all of the punishment that your sin deserves. All of the punishment that my sin deserves was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And now if we will put our faith in him, if we will make him our treasure, the promise, the hope of the gospel is this is that you don't take punishment, but you take reward. That because of his death on the cross, that what you get by him taking all of your penalty is you get all of his reward. You get all of his grace, all of his mercy. This is why Paul in Romans 8 will say that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus. Because of what he did on the cross, that's why we celebrate Christmas. And so if you've, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, if you've never put your hope in this gospel that we've talked about this morning, I hope that you will do that today. At the end of this service, we'll have people down front who would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. You can go to our Next Steps table, Next Steps banners out there. There are people who would love to talk with you love to talk about what it is that Jesus has done. I'd love to talk with you after service about what is it that Jesus has done and why that changes everything for you.